LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Jason Horsley, who joins us to discuss transhumanism and the colonization of space. The talk draws upon Jason's book, Prisoner of Infinity, UFOs, Social Engineering and the Psychology of Fragmentation. Despite the idealism and hope surrounding the first manned space flights and missions to the moon, in their wake the drive to explore and colonize space seemed to stall or even regress. Dreams of cities on Mars and beyond appeared to be just that, dreams. Today, however, the space race is on again like never before with Elon Musk's SpaceX, Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin, and Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, just three of the high-profile companies leading the charge. But what lies behind this flurry of activity? Are the forces driving technological development changing? Then we have the technologies of transhumanism, such as artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, biotechnology, cybernetics, cloning, mind-machine melding, mind-uploading, and so on. The nexus between these and the new space race is highly significant and not a little sinister. Transcend the body, escape the earth, achieve immortality among the stars, and all those nasty political, economic and social problems simply dissolve. But walking away won't be so easy, especially when our predicament has its origin in the way we think about ourselves, each other, and our place in the world. This entire agenda is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of life, death and consciousness, a new understanding of which is urgently needed if our species is to survive. Hello and welcome Jason and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks Greg for having me back one more time. It's been quite a few runs we've done now. It has. Well, I hope it's not the last. The title of our talk today is Transhumanism and the Colonization of Space. Now, this was partly inspired, or largely inspired, by reading your book, Prisoner of Infinity, UFOs, Social Engineering, and the Psychology of Fragmentation. We've talked about that in a couple of previous interviews. If listeners are interested in any of that, uh, they can find links to those other talks on the uh, website page for this talk, that's at legalized-freedom.com. Before we jump into our topic, though, for, if anybody's coming to this cold for the first time, uh, just say a little bit about yourself and your work. Right. Well, that's always hard. My mind went to my thrift store right away, which is the last thing probably your listeners want to hear about. That's what I think of as work, I suppose. I run a thrift store, a little business in Canada. I've written a whole bunch of books. And the books have become, they've been evolving and transmuting over the years. Prisoner Infinity, I think, is the most complete 
work that represents most closely what I've been endeavoring to do throughout the years, really, but more and more consciously, and uh, what I've recently termed it as Mapping Hell. So actually my latest book is called Maps of Hell. It's about Hollywood. Um, but the previous books, Prisoner Infinity, Seen and Not Seen, and Vice of Kings were very much installments in in this process of mapping hell, which uh, which is a poetic language, of course, for, I would say, tracing the contours of... Um, trauma within my own body as a way to uh, hopefully dissolve it, to release the, the, the sort of tensions and the toxins within the body that have turned my own body into a living hell. Uh, so, yeah, that that's my summation. I wanted to make it relevant to today's topic as well, because I think transhumanism is, is very symptomatic of that, that um, traumatic response to... Um, toxins in the body by by uh, projecting outward into some fantasy realm and I, I've definitely been susceptible to that in my own life even if I never bought into transhumanism for a second uh, I bought into my own crucial fictions as you know and so that's very much what what I've been mapping over the years is these crucial fictions of the mind as a way to try and uh, relocate my body in space-time now, if listeners don't know what transhumanism is, they're just going to have to do a little bit of homework to get up to speed. Uh, the Wikipedia entry on it is perfectly satisfactory. I feel, and this was you know reinforced by reading your book, that the whole transhumanism manifesto, the whole agenda, is based in a fundamental misunderstanding of life and death. Now, that in itself might be a little bit beyond the scope of Prisoner of Infinity, I don't know. But anyway, the entire agenda seems misplaced to me. And not least because, if we bring it down to, you know, more worldly realms, this idea of transcending, escaping the body, escaping problems, you know, whether they're personal or societal or global, is a flawed response, let's put it to say the least. And in your book, you talk about Ray Kurzweil, of course, the one of the main cheerleaders of transhumanism, and also your work uh, deals heavily with the, the work of um, Whitley, Whitley Strieber, the um, communion author, you know, famous, the UFO guy, the guy who kind of reorientated the whole of ufology and, and alien lore uh, with his work. Uh, you describe Kurtzfile as suffering from, quote, the same psychic schism as Streber. So from the point of view of what you've done so far and your feelings on the topic, maybe you could just like add to what I've said. I don't, I don't think that you were wrong there when you were, I mean, how you began there was a fundamental delusion that, transhumanism is symptomatic of and evidence of so that's that's how i attempt to look at transhumanism in prisoner infinity and how i attempt to look at streber's work as symptomatic of a collective pathology um so and that involves specifics as well of course when if one is trying to diagnose something one doesn't just name it one has to actually map the symptoms and trace the symptoms back to possible causes and with trauma one is intuiting causes uh well both deducing and intuiting because the nature of trauma uh is that it's i mean when it's profound is that it creates amnesia we forget it it's it's or, or we never we never really mentalize it or narrativize it because it's in the body and um so i'm making the correlation there between 
traumatic impact impact on the body and the creation of delusions dissociative delusions so that's how i look at Kurzweil and of course with Kurzweil I look at the, the specifics of his particular fixations as with Strieber. Strieber seems more fixated on the mother, uh, Kurzweil more on the father, though of course it's not either or, it's usually both and and, but I do use some basic Freudian psychology in there and Lacanian and Jungian and so on, uh, just as, as lenses to try and understand the ways in which um we 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 confabulate pseudo solutions to problems that are too unbearable for us to actually face such as trauma that's in the body and so i i mean i think the fundamental the key here to me is um a a refusal to allow our consciousness to be in the body an unwillingness to to let our consciousness be in the body because there's something unbearable in our bodies and uh, and the creation of narratives that not only allow us to escape our body by you know going off into these fantasies but the fantasies themselves and I'm not saying fantasy and this could be fantasy with a PH the Freudian sense these fantasies may indeed correspond with aspects of reality they don't have to just be entirely you know mind based confabulations but anyway, they're, they're definitely uncoupled from reality in certain key aspects. The, the fantasies themselves are about leaving the body. So Strieber's is about out-of-body experiences a lot, going off with these other interdimensional visitors and so on, non-human beings, non-physical beings, and uh, of course Kurt's wheels and uh, the other transhumanists. The whole movement is, is about leaving the body behind. Even though you've had space in the past, you've had space exploration and colonization enthusiasts such as the late Stephen Hawking and uh, Elon Musk warning about what they saw as potential dangers of, well, specifically AI, but just, you know, rolling that into the transhumanist thing as well. Despite that, we can still say that some of the same displacement applies to space exploration and colonization schemes. Uh, which is, if not transcend the body, then sort of escape the Earth, um, achieve immortality among the stars, and all those aforementioned problems I was talking about, they just somehow go away. Not quite sure how. So for me, in terms of like the Venn diagram overlap, there's, there's a lot of common ground between the, these two subject areas. Indeed, yes. So uh, this is sold to us in a way, uh, these intimately interlinked, interlinked agendas sold to us uh, via propaganda that all of this is somehow necessary you know in the case of space exploration uh, colonization got uh, tremendous pressure on our systems here on earth basically the earth isn't big enough for us uh, and you know the biosphere is collapsing so we're going to have to go somewhere else there's just no alternative we'll have to just figure it out it seems improbable almost impossible at the minute but we're going to have to do it and in terms of the transhumanist um, agenda that that's inevitable that it may only be not point whatever percent uh, cheerleading are involved in this, but it's it's happening. Whether we like it or not, that's the way things are going. Techno utopia, and it's almost like casting a spell on us. I mean, we've always had minority control in society. Societies, you know, are inherently hierarchical, but it seems like the current situation is that the, the smallest number of people ever with the most control. Yes. 
Well, there were a lot of assumptions, well, some assumptions in what you said there, and uh, it's bringing to mind something I felt. I was reading your piece before we started speaking, and I also found some assumptions in that, and um, it occurred to me something I wanted to say at some point when we talked today, which is that there's this whole thing of mission creep, there's also Chinese whispers. When when your trajectory is slightly off, um, if you maintain that trajectory without correcting it, then eventually you end up very, very far off. So with Chinese whispers, if they go on for long enough, you end up with a message, receiving a message you know, down this line of uh, miscommunication that has absolutely nothing to do with the original meaning and, and then you pass it on just because you're on some sort of blind faith that uh blind trust that you, you know you're receiving it from a good source where you're not so the thing with transhumanism in my view uh, and space colonization is is that it's a symptom of of insanity essentially and 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 so we risk we if we take it too seriously then we risk like talking to a drunk, you know, a drunken schizophrenic in a bar, uh, after a certain time, just, just to get along and maintain the conversation, we, we, we risk getting sucked into his own dementia. And so that's my feeling about transhumanism, where prisoner infinity really was a labor of love and a kind of Herculean task to take on that degree of delusional belief that, as you say, is so widespread and it does seem to be top down. But it's also become bottom up because as I cover in Prisoner Infinity, there's been a concerted effort over the decades to colonize our consciousness, to infiltrate our psyches with uh, narratives about the wonders of space and colonization of space, Star Trek, you know, from Star Trek onward. Um, and now there are similar uh versions around transhumanism and technology and all the rest of it although there's also dystopian visions of course so um i don't i mean you said for example that we have to get off the planet if we're going to survive well i don't i think i think we need to question that oh i don't agree i don't agree with that jason at all i I was just presenting Mm. the point of view that is presented to us yeah, not least you know, by someone like Stephen Hawking. He said it multiple times. So no, I I don't believe that. I don't think we can. But uh, sorry to cut across you. No, that's okay. I mean, I wasn't sure how much you were you were just being a mouthpiece for these um, these fictions and and how, because they are so deeply embedded. So yeah, our situation on the planet there is, there certainly is a general belief that there's overpopulation and that the system can't support us. And that seems to be a delivery device for some of these proposed solutions. Uh, that itself makes me skeptical about the diagnosis, if you see what I mean. You know, are we overpopulated? Does that, you know, what what is it that makes the planet overpopulated? It's, as I write in Prison Infinity, it's not that there's too many humans necessarily. It's that the system that's sustaining humanity uh, is is uh you know creating too much um pressure for the for the ecosystem it's yeah and so the technology that is being proposed to solve these problems is only increasing them and i i see transhumanism as interesting in this way because it 
it seems that it's really exposing the mechanism of a delusion whereby the solution is so obviously, and I would say space colonization too, although that's a little harder to argue, uh, the solution really is much worse than the problem. I mean, the solution of transhumanism essentially is saying destroy us. We should just destroy ourselves you know, and let technology take over. That's how I see it. Um, and, and I know they have reasoning that supposedly we're not supposed to see it that way, but I just don't, I, I don't believe it. I think it's absurd and that one would have to already be so uncoupled from organic existence and nature in the first place to even begin to believe it. Uh, in the first place. With space colonization, it's not quite so obvious, but one of the things I addressed that is obvious is why do we think that it would be in any way better, I mean, to, to float in a in a tin can, to quote David Bowie, uh, you know, like a, at best a floating shopping mall for several decades, uh, or be frozen or whatever, uh, or if it's Mars, to basically, I mean, if anyone's renovated a house, they know that it's a pretty hard life, you know, uh, imagine renovating a planet, my God, you know, <laughs> in what way is this supposed to be somehow easier than the situation we have on Earth? I mean, the only reason it's so hard on Earth is because we've been pursuing demented and de delusional uh, ideas and, and beliefs and philosophies as a way to try and solve problems. Uh, so then this is merely the continuation of that process and of course we would take it with us so it's really I mean, bring it back to my original point it's really hard to address something that if it is a fundamental insanity evidence or symptom of insanity how do you address it um you know a therapist who talks to a person who's deep in delusion they do have to enter the delusion and they can't just say you're deluded that's not going to work Right? So they do have to talk in the language of the delusion, but then the therapist risks actually enabling the delusion and becoming possessed by it, and that's what I feel. I feel that we're all on, on the edge now of getting sucked into this collective delusion uh, for various reasons. I mean, it's collective, for one. It's mimetic, it's spreading. Uh, we are in increasingly desperate times even if the solutions are making it worse, that, that doesn't change the fact that things are getting more and more desperate. And so we, we, we become less and less conscious, many of us. Like with the coronavirus, it seems as though there's something real happening and then there's the react, and then there's the, the way it's being, you know, mediated or narrativized. And then there's the reaction, which is probably being manipulated. And a bunch of people going out and buying toilet paper and stocking up on toilet paper or wearing surgical masks, these are not actual logical solutions. They're not realistic or sane behavior, particularly. Uh, they're not practical behavior, I mean. So, but when people are agitated, they will, they will act in ways that are agitated and that will increase the agitation collectively. And, and so it snowballs. So it, it's hard to talk about this directly, I guess I'm saying, because I think it's, and this is what you said right at the start, we're looking at something that is, um, evidence of, I would say, to really get emphatic here, evidence of humanity collectively being on the point of insanity and therefore of self-destruction. Well, I hope that it was evident from the tone of the magazine piece that I sent you that I was tr 
doing trying to do a couple of things. One was point out, you know, everything's that I say that sounds like it's coming from them is pre-sized with, you know, we are being told that quote. And I was trying to highlight how ridiculous it was, but also how it, it is affecting people. So it's not so much about the realistic prop, uh, prospects for transhumanist schemes or space colonization plans or anything else, but it's how other people who are not very, perhaps very well up on it are responding to it and how they are, you know, they are buying into it. So it's not yeah. that I think these things are going to come to pass. It's just that our reaction to it, as you just mentioned with the virus, it's just it's a similar type of uh, dynamic at work there. Yeah, and and it is, certainly people are buying into it incrementally. I mean, even insofar as how people become more and more dependent on their cell phones and more and more content to disappear into their cell phones rather than interact with their environment. That's a very real observable phenomena, and it's already extending into people taking microchips into their bodies in order to have more easy access at work and whatever other convenience uh, you know, promises that the technology is giving, uh, all of that is proceeding apparently according to plan and much of this is Ray Kurzweil, you know, he's a spokesperson for this agenda and Kurzweil is promising, threatening um, brain microchips in the brain that will link us to the artificial intelligence cloud by 2030 within 10 years. So if if things continue as they have continued, then yes, we're looking at a terrifying, very near future. I, I don't think that they will. I, th- I, I think that I think that we're so close to some sort of uh, critical threshold that that something's going to intervene, but I mean, that's fingers crossed behind my back. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to, hopefully I'll live to see this and, uh, it could very well be that 10 years from now, things are still grinding towards this hideous dystopia that is being, uh, packaged in such a way that people genuinely are looking at it as utopia, which I find absolutely mind boggling. So, I mean, to use a specific example, I don't want to break into your thought there but just end on that the the years uh that the bbc show with uh emma thompson uh ended on a, a a totally positive utopian version of transhuman the book i was reading today actually and it's uh, by the aforementioned next guest on the show it's uh, james howard Constler, who writes a lot about you know economics and environment and what have you i've had him on before uh, he has a little segment uh in his new book where he had addresses transhumanism as part of this sort of techno-utopian or what he calls techno-narcissistic dimension of society. And his interesting point is that he sees the transhumanist and sort of AI agenda as now in a sort of race with economic collapse, trying to get things done before it's no longer feasible for various reasons. And he says, I I believe economic collapse is going to win the race. Mm. Yeah, Uh, well, I don't know what sort of collapse it could even be psychological collapse, like human beings just start becoming so demented, so dissociated, so disconnected from reality, uh, before the, the techno, you know, the smart system, or whatever we're going to call it, is fully in place, uh, and people aren't being run by algorithms quite yet, that, that they can't put finishing touches on it because people are running around so wildly that they won't take the implant. Yeah, your mental state can get you through a lot of things. You look at people who've been in prison for decades and 
But yeah, your state of mind can get you through a lot of things. It can make the difference between survival and not in certain situations. And in that sense, you know, in all sorts of contexts of problems that we're facing, I kind of worry about our collective state. Because it's a bit mm. like, you know, you can be the best driver in the world, but that won't stop some drunk guy or some old guy falling asleep, as happened to me once, crossing the... The, the median and crashing into, you know, it doesn't, you're still the best driver out there, but you can't predict what other people are going to do, how they're going to react to things. Well, that's true. And that, so then that brings up a kind of meta subject, which is what can we turn to to guide us, if not technology? If we know we can't trust our leaders, we know we can't trust social mandates or the laws or the governments. Uh, and we know more and more, I hope, some of us, you and I, perhaps, that we can't trust our technology. We certainly don't want to let algorithms or, or some, you know, flawed human created artificial intelligence regime, uh, guide us. So what, what can we turn to instead? Uh, and that would be, I would say our bodies, like our bodies are guidance systems unto themselves. We, we know that, that, that bees can create mathematically complex uh, hives without any knowledge of mathematics they're following what we we call instinct but instinct is quite a lazy word really also intuition what's that there's something guiding us if we let it um, and that the technology is somehow imitating and replacing and so people like people look for partners now uh, letting algorithms choose it they do their shopping via algorithms so uh, our intuition and our instincts are being, we could say, co-opted, we could say counterfeited, whatever, but we're being sold, you know, a, a, a technological and artificial uh, surrogate for these things. And, and that indicates that, you know, how valuable they are, essentially. So, and this, this is the larger subject that I said on, on to you on Facebook, I colonization of space what's that well it's trying to get away from the earth like it's you know i mean that's even in the narrative uh, the earth can't sustain us we've got to go into space well so there's a there's a there's a fear of the physical environment itself that somehow it's going to kick back against us or it's not going to support us or whatever but it's a lack of trust anyway in in the earth which is the body um, and so therefore there's this corresponding uh, solution supposedly which is get away from it get away from the earth space will be better uh, certainly more of it <laughs> you could say that but it's not there to sustain us there's no indication that space out there can sustain us the way that earth is you could say designed to sustain us but i mean we were created by the earth to some degree physically anyway so then we are we're an extension of it so it's just our natural womb if you will it's our you know our, our larger womb and um so i think that that's that's a, a microcosm or no that's a macrocosm of something that's microcosmic too which is that we're trying to project our consciousness into these seemingly infinite realms of the imagination really um sort of cosmic anyway maybe divine maybe it's a surrogate for the divine um, but we're doing it by going away from the body. And so our consciousness is uh, um, becoming less and less, uh, less and less 
settled in the body and so 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 my orientation what i try to suggest in these books even though it's implicitly i'm not actually writing about it directly is can we reorientate ourselves 180 degrees away from the mind and an outer space uh, and back towards earth nature and our bodies and and discover that we have never fully colonized our bodies that our consciousness has never fully landed in our bodies so we don't even know what that would be like and if if we were to start discovering what that would be like would we discover that our bodies are these that our life force itself is intelligent as long as it's fully uh, anchored in the physical and that that intelligence life force will guide us through absolutely anything even even as you said a drunk driver on the road uh we would know how to avoid the drunk driver because this isn't about skillful being a good driver it's about being so tuned into our life force that it alerts us to what's going on in our environment you know all of the time well we're encouraged to or we should say we're discouraged from listening to intuition or anything that might be called gut feeling, uh, despite the fact, I don't know about you, but in my case, time and time again, it's shown to be a true guide to, you know, feelings about something that come from I know not where turned out to have validity. But we're told that no, there isn't really such a thing anyway, and you certainly can't, you must trust experts and technocrats, and you know, they've not how you feel about something that's invalid, you know, that's your emotions. What's that got to do? What can that tell you? What you were just saying about there's something guiding us if we'll let it, there's a very interesting thread running throughout your book concerning psychic research and psychic abilities. And you speak about, I'm paraphrasing your words now, but you speak about domination of inner as well as outer space. And I think you use the phrase about life and space somehow perhaps activating psychic potential so I don't know if you can comment on that, but I think that also this is relevant to your comment about our consciousness has re never really fully landed in our bodies. I, I, you know, I think if we survive long enough physically, we're just at the beginning of that process and, and understanding what that might look like. I agree with you. I don't think we've seen scratch the surface. Yeah. Well, I think we get sabotaged very early on. So babies, you can, I can imagine that baby isn't fully in its body and, in a natural way because it's when it's in the womb well it doesn't have a sense of a body as separate from its mother's body so its consciousness would be uh merged with its mother's consciousness i think very literally viscerally speaking and i think that continues after birth that as babies we're partly in our bodies and partly in our mother's bodies you could say uh, still we're still you know merged with our mother and so there's a process of individuation to my Jungian word, but anyway, where the, the, our consciousness is supposed to start, you know, to fully, um, land in the body or become fully embedded in the body. And, uh, and, you know, babies, if you, if you see how babies are, they are very physical. Like when they grab your hand or when they do something, they're really there. They put all the life force they have access to behind it. So, but, I think that that's probably um, the most embodied, embodied most of us ever get to be because I think that that period where we're actually beginning to become aware of ourselves as individuals and have a sense of us as consciousness possibly being like fully anchored in the physical 
uh, involves separating from the mother and having a sense of myself as individuals uh, and then and perhaps connecting to the earth as the larger mother perhaps as even that we're interacting with our environment hopefully the father's helping us to do that and so on but anyway it's obviously a very long preamble but um what i look at with prison infinity that you were referring to there was the um with the psychism was the uh well, well, first of all, the psychism, I think, is generally experienced and as, as, um, advocated and, and exploited by, by some of these groups and many books that we might read, uh, and, and certainly, you know, programs like the CIA and remote viewing and things like that. It does involve traumatizing the body. And so I think it involves sort of inserting a wedge in the psyche, preferably at a very early age, but it can be done later that that prevents or keeps us out of the body and keeps us somehow um exposed to these psychic realms in a way that isn't we're not using the body as a, just a natural instrument we're actually using our disembodiment or exploiting it as a way to access psychic realms so then the, the experiences of the psychic impressions aren't coming to us through our body which is the natural way which would be instinctive and intuitive they're coming to us as a result of our being you know split off from our body so that's the thing i explore in prisoner infinity and then the thing about space well this is edgar mitchell this claim of the overview of that effect that going into space i.e uncoupling the human body from its second matrix, as it I've used that term in a different meaning, but I mean it's the second womb uh, of the earth. Supposedly that has this profound effect on the human psyche that's similar to enlightenment. Uh, which, So that's not quite to say that it facilitates psychic powers, but I, I think that Edgar Mitchell probably claim that as well. Um, and who knows about that? I mean, who knows if there's any truth in that? Have human beings ever really left the planet we don't really know for sure we certainly don't know if they've gone all the way to the moon for sure uh but let's just say benefit the doubt that human beings have been able to get far enough from the planet to look back on the planet has this had a very profound effect on the psyche and if so why there's a recent movie about this actually that i started watching with natalie portman but i gave up on because i could see it was just this cheesy propaganda but um and if so if you know why well the, the, the common thing is because it's transcendent, transcendent, and we start to appreciate the fragility of the planet and all these things. Well, maybe, but maybe it's also that maybe that's also a kind of trauma. You know, maybe we're not supposed to physically separate from the Earth in that way. I'm not saying that there aren't higher dimensions and so on, and, but in this way, using technology, even violence like rocket ships and so on. It's all the same system that many of many people believe is destroying the planet. And whether you believe that or not, you can certainly see that it's somehow anti-life. There's something about our system and our technology and our weapons and all that, which really seem uh, antithetical to, to the life force and to love and harmony. Uh, so, so, so why would we think that somehow we could use those weapons of mass destruction or those those tools of of space colonization to 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 attain enlightenment it 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 doesn't add up to me so then i'm more inclined to suspect 
that we're reenacting an original split that was traumatic, that was violent, the split from our mother, you know, and, uh, and uh, our inability to really land in our bodies where we never, so we never really landed on the planet either. So then, so then leaving it as a way, as somehow that's supposed to enlighten us or provide the solution. We, again, I think we're just reenacting, compulsively reenacting the trauma thinking that we're going to solve it and potentially it could solve it because we could see why we're doing it like every delusion does have a uh, silver lining because if we start to see through it and let the crucial fiction come undone we'll what we'll understand i suppose maybe i put that the wrong way if we start to see it and understand it like why we had to assemble this crucial fiction it will start to come undone so, and, and then we will reaccess the life force. So, I don't know if that, that that's a very good argument actually for the positivity of it, but at least for the function of looking at it, like it's worth looking at these things. And um, there is something in us, I guess I'll just end on that. There is something in us that yearns for transcendence that isn't uh, pathological or delusional. I think, I think that that's that's inescapable. Uh, we yearn for a God, we yearn for eternity. That's, that's not um, a self-destructive impulse. That can be a very positive impulse. But when we externalize it and literalize it and turn it into, you know, aliens from other dimensions or colonizing other planets, that, that's when I think it becomes actually uh, something that takes us further from connecting to God. Because we have we have to start with ourselves, with what we are. Like if we're not connected within ourselves to our own bodies, how can we possibly think we could connect to anything else? Yeah, but we do seem to be locked into sort of a cycle of denial and distraction that there is anything transcendent that we might crave that might be very necessary for us to pursue and then chasing down these blind alleys, some of which we've been describing. It's interesting that as far as our own bodies go, quite early on in life, usually when we're teenagers, uh, we quite often get into, we become very aware of the body, you know, puberty, you know, for obvious reasons, things are changing. And that often involves a lot of, not too strong a word, disgust. And, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's things that are not talked about or things that we struggle to process. And this is all, of course, tied up with, with our feelings as well, our emotions. And, for most people, that never really goes away. Uh, does it? Does there anybody, you or I, or anybody listening to this, that say, "I'm happy with my body," in purely physical terms? What does that even mean? How you know? How important is it for to be a certain way? You know, we spend so much time chasing um, physical augmentation. I'm not talking about transhumanist variety now, but just you know, making ourselves better uh, with quote unquote, you know, with surgery or pills or constant diet and exercise or just spending a lot of time quietly just loathing our physical appearance. Not saying everyone's like that, but a large proportion of people are one, one of the two or moving between both. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's endemic. And as you say, it starts, becomes fully conscious as teenagers. Um, I think, again, well, as you're saying, the solution isn't in the externals. Like The more we try to fix our bodies or whatever it is, driven by that self-disgust or that self-rejection, 
uh, it's not going to work. It might not make it worse, but it might. I mean, look at Michael Jackson. That's obviously not the, the way to go. Um, I'm sure he was racked by self-disgust by the end. Um, so the alternative, again, is seems to me to be tuning into the body and finding that the life force itself is is very close to what we think of as love. So it's, a, it's an intelligent energy and it's a loving energy, I would say. So there's something uh, about the body that is the opposite of narcissism and yet is also self-love. It's a true kind of self-love. And um, so there is, there's a, there's an overlap there. So like I'm trying to work on my diet a bit. I'm doing Lent now. And so I've stopped eating things that begin with CH. That's chips, cheese, and chocolate. You know, those are things I really enjoy a lot. I get a lot of mental stimulation and physical too. They're like drugs. Uh, so I just, well, yeah, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll be a good Christian and I'll do without them for Lent. And, uh, but that's a specific example. But generally, I, I really, I do try to be as diligent as I can be about eating what is good for my body. David Shana has been talking about this recently, that if we want to really change things in our ancestral line and um, get more tuned into the life force, well, start by tuning in and uh, you know, eating things that, um, that will give us energy and then using that energy to do things that we will feel good about. I mean, things that are worth doing, things that we're here to do as a way of giving thanks to the food. That's a very organic, loving relationship with our environment, the food, and with our, with our bodies. You know, our consciousness, our bodies, and our environment as a sort of trinity there, isn't there? They're all, they're all overlapping. You are what you eat. The earth provides the food. Uh, the food provides our bodies with energy. And then, you know, we ourselves, our consciousness, uh, uses our bodies um, or, or lets the earth use them. I mean, who knows where this guidance comes from? I think it transcends the earth and it comes from the sun and, and beyond. Uh, I mean, these are real possibilities that are rejected by science or just ignored by science. They'd be considered mysticism or new age, you know, what have, what have you. But they're experiential and uh, they are ways to regulate one's you know, bodily activities that aren't vanity, that aren't narcissism, that that do augment our sense of being at home in our bodies and our sense of self-acceptance. And I do think that there are individuals who are fully in their bodies and fully living their lives and don't aren't conflicted in this way. I mean, I know I've I've made significant steps over the years. Um, a lot of it has to do with working with David Shana, who I've told you about, as might be a good guest for your podcast. Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with actually hanging around with somebody who seems completely at home in their bodies and seems to love their lives and just love living their lives. That's so unusual to be around that and to see that it's possible. It kind of emboldens one. Uh, and so, so I've noticed changes over the uh, it's actually 12 years since I met him, but certainly over the last few years, I've really noticed changes that, that lead me to think, to believe even that there's an end point. You know, it's possible to be fully here, fully landed, 
and fully at home in our bodies and to let the life force guide us to let life live us and take our hands off the wheel and then i mean everything changes then that that would be a real singularity as in a, an omega point where everything changed for 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 you the individual perhaps the illusion of being an individual would change too and then we'd realize that oh my god you know all these other humans who are still locked in this trauma hell realm uh until they get free you know i'll never be free either but still at least one would had, had taken the step you know had crossed the threshold and so could then come back and and help others to to see that threshold so still there would be a fundamental change uh, and i and uh, i think that, that change is not only possible uh, but it's absolutely essential for us to survive it's, it's like as i say the real singularity to, as compared to the counterfeit uh, and i also think that it's it's actually very close not in terms of likelihood but i mean for us as individuals to simply reorient ourselves to our bodies and start listening to our bodies and and and, and then uh let the life force lead us i mean that could happen in a moment it seems to me it seems to me that our resistance to that could be largely um like a paper tiger that we've been terrified by uh that if we were just to look at it long enough we'd see that actually what comes between us and peace love and harmony is, is nothing at all yeah well we filled the world and our lives and our bodies and our minds with so much plastic garbage and noise you know it, it seems to like fill every every fiber and every pore in, mm. in, every, in every second you know so that there's no room for anything else any other signals to get through but the space colonization schemes are on one level for the advocates about the human race not dying, you know, as a collective whole, we will go on, no matter yeah. what, no matter what happens to to life on Earth, and the transhumanist agenda is a, a again about the, the individual or the the mind not dying, but all this life extension, immortality, uh, delusions, mind uploading, and all the rest of it, I can't imagine what life would be like if it just wasn't going to end. Unless, you know, violently and deliberately or accidentally, I suppose. And I've talked to one of these life extension advocates, you know, uh, 500 years to 1000. There's no reason why we can't do this with technology going forward, tweaking genes and DNA and all the rest of it. But in many ways, uh, for good things are only really good when we kind of know, even if it's subconsciously that, that they will end, you know, like going on a, I don't know, a holiday or a day out or, going to a party or a wedding or something. It's like, this isn't just reality forever. We know that these things will eventually come to an end. And, but of course, with our, our inbuilt, all, not quite species wide, but almost species wide terror of death, you know, as the last taboo, it just informs so much about how we live or, or otherwise on the earth. And I think that that, whole idea about it, I think it's very interesting to think about that in the context of what you've been talking about about landing fully in the body it's like this as far as we can tell we don't really understand fully what it's for but it itself is is transitory it, maybe there's something before and after that again we only have anecdotal evidence for that but there I feel anyway that there's something really important about this experience that it isn't completely random that so there's something 
as you say, we might be very close to it, but there's something we're not quite grasping about this experience that we're having. Mm, well, that, of course, we're very close to it. I mean, in various ways, we're close to it in the sense that we're, we could die at any time. We absolutely don't know. We're also close to it in terms of 80 years really is just a heartbeat in, in cosmic time. And you know, when we're on our deathbeds, if we actually get to be in bed, as opposed to with our boots, I think I'd rather have my boots on. But anyway, when we see death coming, if we get to see it coming, we're going to think, my God, it was just a moment. Yeah. So, so, and that's going to be our final moment. So that will be the defining moment in some way. So yeah, death is a very, something that is very close. And I think that actually, I said this years ago that death, in a way, is synonymous for God or vice versa. I mean, they both represent the grand, the ultimate unknown. Now, of course, for the atheist, death is just synonymous for death, you know, for non-existence. That was my brother's position. But I'm not really interested in positions or philosophies. I'm interested in reality. And although I don't, I mean, I'm not going to claim to know what reality is in my mind. I'm pretty sure the body knows what it is. I'm also pretty sure the body isn't afraid of death unless unless it has a reason to be as in its fear or its adrenaline will help it to survive. I think that uh, death, I mean, fear of death, as you're talking about, what makes death a taboo is a mental thing. It's a mental lack of a relationship, isn't it? It's a refusal to have a relationship with, with a reality we call death, which I would say is a symptomatic of a refusal to have reality with our bodies. And I think a lot of people think, Maybe if they think about this at all, we don't want to really be in our bodies because death is so frightening. Or so if we're not in our bodies, we somehow will escape death. I think there's some truth in that, but it's also a bit circular. We've never, because we've never really got into our bodies, we've never really been able to think about death in a way that's embodied, that's healthy. Uh, and so we've got this phantasm, it's like Satan really, that we call death, that and I, you know, I'm not exempt by any means. I, when I think about death, which I do all the time, in a way, I mean, I don't sit around thinking, but I mean, it comes into my awareness a lot, several times a day. And uh, there's, there is a fear response. It's like, oh, oh shit, I am going to die someday. But on the other hand, as you're saying, there's also a uh, something beside the fear, which is, I'm going to die someday. As you say, life becomes more meaningful then. Of course it does, because I'm going to die someday. I don't just have endless minutes and hours to, to piss away doing crap that isn't worth doing or being afraid of, of doing or saying things that need to be done and said. It's ridiculous, right? We, we're in this bizarre contradictory thing where our awareness of death, instead of in, encouraging us to live, inspiring us to live fully, which is what it's truly for, I think, it, it, it shuts us down. We, we kind of make this, it's not rational, but one could sort of pretend it's rational and say, to, in a way to understand it, to say, we make this, we, uh, we reason that, uh, if, if I don't fully live, I won't fully die. As in, if I don't fully love the souls that I connect with, if I don't fully enjoy my life here, it will be less painful when I die now. So that's not a rational thing, but you can see how there's, there's something in us that had some formative or series of formative experiences where life was too painful. 
so we chose not to live it fully and it's almost like death is a is again a paper tiger that's a standing for that for our our fear of life we're so afraid of life that um we don't live and so because we don't live death becomes terrifying because imagine dying and this is something we can all imagine imagine dying it's actually cliche and realizing that we never lived all the things we didn't say and do death would be terrifying i mean it would be so heartbreaking it would be terrifying and there may very well be metaphysical dimensions that that we intuit there which is that um what we die unfinished we die into you know our regret we die into our regret and we pass it on to our children and then we're in some disembodied realm not in the ai cloud but in the akashic realms or whatever the bardo who knows you know where where consciousness goes after the body dies uh helpless witnesses to you know the mess that we didn't clean up you know or our descendants that are carrying our burdens so i think there is a very real dimension to hell this idea of hell not just that we're recreating it on earth but there's some hell of the disembodied realm uh and that although it probably doesn't help to fear that i think it's right to acknowledge it that you know death does come to us all and death is a day of judgment for us all and we will be judged whether we say by god or by our own souls you know our own unconscious when it's revealed to us it's six or one half a dozen other it's going to feel like uh, the wrath of god or the or the mercy of god or both uh, when when that time comes so so why not get right with god here and now why not align with our bodies well absolutely yeah, why not the answer is that we're afraid to and so we've created all of these distractions as you say we've got the phony transcend- transcendental we can pretend that the the real transcendental doesn't exist uh even while we're filling that vacuum with uh with phony imitations of it that keep us distracted from our death and finally uh perpetuate the the narrative the crucial fiction that we're going to live forever well as someone once said one day we will die but on all other days we will not that's something I like to say to myself. Well, as we begin to move things to a conclusion for today, I've often wondered if physical evolution for human beings hasn't come to an end and maybe it'll be self-driven from now on. Perhaps we're on the cusp of a new evolutionary stage that, that might be, might be mental or psychic or in terms of, uh, you know, deeper awareness. Or I don't really know. Those are which words that I've used, uh, in the past. That we a journey within, if we feel that physical frontiers may be on some level exhausted, certainly they are in materialistic terms. So that would be evolving or transcending the body and the planet, I suppose, in a different sense. That you know, evolving the the psyche, the mind. At first, I was feeling uh, that you were being perhaps too optimistic <laughs> as far as foreseeing any future for humanity at all. Uh, I, I, I don't see much beyond the next few years, but I've always felt that way. So it may just be something in me, in my psyche, some sort of imprint. I think what I've been looking at recently and blogging about, somewhat under the influence of Devashana, but it's not, it's not only that. It's definitely 
congruent with my own intuitions and instincts over the years, but it's been always been changing. This feeling that you know, humanity is collectively destroying itself, and you know, what what that's going to look like, and how that pertains to evolution or you know, the lack thereof. Um, to me, it has to do what if there's any hope for us at all. Uh, which is what evolution is. It's a scientific version of hope, isn't it? Or God or what have you. It's the higher guiding principle. Uh, and I certainly believe there's a higher guiding principle that's in our bodies. So that would be somewhat consistent with the idea of evolution. But um, I think evolution has been very co-opted uh, as a language or as a term. And it, it's, it, it gets sort of mixed up with this idea of progress. So I'm a bit suspicious of it. Um, but let's say as a development, as, as a possible way through this this we clothe, this dead end we seem to be in, uh, as as a species, what what I what I sense and intuit, and I'm very reluctant about it because it's really not very appealing. Is is that the only way that we can possibly get through this eye of the needle? Uh, is by <laughs> Well, the analogy there is the rich man doesn't enter, so I guess I'd say first by dropping all of our baggage, you know, um, we've got to let go of an awful lot to survive, I think, as individuals and collectively, an awful lot. You were saying that before about all of this plastic and it's just in our cells and everything, so we need a massive purge. But how that's going to happen is something else. Um, but the other thing I was going to say that's, that's related is, is that seems to me that, and perhaps this is a more specific or concrete way of describing possibly what you're describing as in going inward and opening ourselves up psychically as well as, you know, with our senses, that um, it may be that we are all interconnected as individuals in such a, a deep, implicate, way, such an essential way, that we, we we essentially don't exist as individuals at all. We only exist as a collective body of humanity that's distributed throughout 8 billion bodies that are seemingly hell-bent on destroying themselves, albeit with this, you know, psychopathic elite at the top. But the psychopathic elite would only represent, in this model, you know, like the superego of, of the uh, of the organism, of the, of the meta-organism of humanity. So although, yeah, you could say that there's a small fraction that are driving us into s destruction, there we're still part of that, unless we allow for non-human element, which is a whole subject unto itself. So my sense is, is that really becoming aware of who we are and tuning into our bodies and finding a genuine solution that isn't the things we've been talking about today, the, the pseudo-techno-dystopian solutions, the techno-narcissistic solutions, uh, entails merging with, with each other, with letting ourselves see that we are interconnected and opening ourselves up to each other at, as seemingly discrete souls and um, allowing the life force to, to go where it has to go, being guided by that, uh, and bringing us together in ways that are unprecedented and terrifying and extremely, um, uh, extremely undesirable, really. 
so you know can we learn to live together it's the short version right uh and that would have to start on the micro scale so I, I wouldn't even dare to talk about this if I didn't have my experience in the thrift store over the past five, four years, which, um, which I've had to do that. I've had to be constantly opening my doors, literally, to some quite undesirable customers and be there saying, can I help you? What do you need? You know, giving them stuff, letting them steal, uh, you know, letting them come in drunk and on drugs and, really you know stuff that if i could choose i would avoid all of those interactions but i can't and i think we can't as human beings we can't really avoid the fact that if humanity is destroying itself then we're, we're all going to go down and we can't really save ourselves except by saving each other <coughs> however however that would come about i mean i'm not I'm not suggesting any kind of Mother Teresa drive, but I think it begins with some kind of really deep felt recognition of our shared humanity. And, and that, of course, prevents us from pointing the finger and, and saying, well, all those other humans fucked everything up for me, <laughs> right? It's really like we're all, we've all been complicit. So we're all doing in our little ways, we're, we may all be contributing to the self-destruction drive. And it's, it's easy to point the finger at the other and say, well, look, that person's worse than I am and they're doing it worse than me. But that would seem to perpetuate the uh, scapegoating, isn't it? That perpetuates the complicity essentially because really we just look at ourselves and say well i am actually doing some shitty stuff to my body and therefore to the planet and other human beings so when i see other people being shitty I, rather than judge them can i can i help them in some way a useful way to think about it sometimes is to think about the cells in your brain you know individual brain cells are not at war with each other they're not stealing from each other they're not condemning each other uh, in the wider body, your liver is not taking resources from your kidneys because there are limited resources. It's all a symbiotic system that's uh, completely interdependent. So it's yeah, okay. yeah. Thank, thank you for that. I mean, that's uh, we brought it back to yeah, a more because this is a practical thing, and the danger is it can end up seeming sentimental, and it's absolutely not. It's wholly practical. It's how a body functions uh, optimally. Uh, and interestingly, that's the analogy that David Shan has been using. So you probably could have an interesting conversation with him about this. Uh, although when he talks about neurons, he doesn't keep it to the brain, which I think is important here. So we're talking about the system. And the, uh, of course, the intestinal tract has neurons and the heart have, has neurons too. So really, the, the, the whole body is, in, is a neuro neurological system. And... Uh, there are many ways, I mean, there are countless ways, let me count the ways, in which those neurons and those systems are not functioning optimally and not communicating op optimally, starting with this, this fear, this con fear contraction of trauma that's in our cells that then makes our bodies, the body armor and right system, all tightened up and rigid, which then prevents us from 
moving fluidly in life, which prevents us from relating and connecting to others, which creates, you know, a whole species that's at war with itself, which creates the society and the civilization, which constantly re-traumatizes us and basically farms the newborn babies into the pods to keep the machine world running. That's the whole thing right there, isn't it? Well, I mean, in terms of a way forward, a path out of this or, or, or meaning and purpose, I can see in part where transhumanist urges and the mania for getting off world are, are stemming from in one way. And it's not just all the topics that we've talked about, but it's a feeling that as a species, we're supposed to be moving. We're supposed to be doing something. And I don't know if that's completely invalid or not. The rest of life on the planet doesn't seem to have that sort of drive. It seems content to just be on, look at some of the species that have been on Earth for millions of years, completely unchanged almost, you know, for, since the time of the dinosaurs, even earlier. If we did achieve some kind of balance within ourselves, within the species on the planet, there still would be people asking the question, yeah, but what are we going to do? Are we just going to, you know, to eat and drink and have our societal interactions and make the things that we need for day-to-day life and maybe have some culture, you know, reading and writing and music. But what are we going to do? There's this feeling, and tell me if you think it's completely misplaced, that that there's a some kind of teleology, some kind of drive that maybe we don't even understand. Maybe that's what we're struggling with at the minute, trying to figure out what it is. But I have this inherent feeling that we're supposed to be doing something, and that that might sound inarticulate, but I don't quite know how else to say it. So uh, by doing, you you mean accomplishing something, don't you? Or, yeah, or that doesn't have to be physical, but it's what I mentioned earlier when I was talking about evolution, just that there's kind of an ongoing thing. The purpose. The purpose that transcends the everyday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's back to evolution, isn't it? Is there an evolutionary function of humanity besides creating more of itself? I mean, because those species that you talked about, you said they haven't changed over millions of years, so it seems like they don't have a particular function beyond contributing to the the system at large, which is not not a small thing, of course. If if, if we eat them, or if they, however they they you know help. Uh, nurture and nourish the, the ecosystem at large there does seem to be something about human beings where by we have some purpose or mission or function that does transcend nature itself as in we're not just here replicating so the whole thing can keep going because it's going to end eventually life on earth will end uh, with you know before or after the humans or whatever you know whether the humans die out first life on earth will end so but i think i mean i think that's interesting because there's a question because initially i thought well why on earth would people want more than just living and eating and drinking and being married together what what could possibly be more to life than that if we really were happy and, and fulfilled and of course that's true by definition that's tautological if we're fulfilled we're fulfilled um but I would agree actually that we we're only going to be fully satisfied with merely living if we have connected to our deep life purpose. But I don't think 
we need to understand it mentally. I, I think we might get intimations of that, and I can e I could even suggest what some of those things might be to you, as in you know my opinion. But I don't think it would have much value because I think we'd we'd then be quite close, ironically, to the transhumanists and the Whitley Strievers, very close to the Whitley Strievers, actually. So I don't know about, I was going to say to religious people, but I suppose they generally just say the purpose of life is to get into heaven. So I, so, so that's not so similar, um, to what, to what I imagine or perceive, which is, well, perhaps it is similar in a certain sense, but. Well, maybe that's just metaphorical. You know, maybe that's one of the things that, you know, mystery traditions and religions have, have handed down across the ages are symbolic systems and meanings that uh, we just boil down into very crude things like, you know, getting into heaven to talk to the, you know, God sitting on a cloud, etc. Yeah, but I think the difference that I was stumbling over was that getting into heaven involves leaving earth and it's not during this life, so it's some sort of reward as opposed to, and the transhumanist thing and the space colonization is about in this life. And I, and I do feel in that particular case more aligned with those distortions than with the Christian distortion, which is it's all just in the afterlife. I feel as though our function, our purpose as human beings is there in the gospel, that it is to fully incarnate, fully embody the divine principle on earth, which would make heaven and earth synonymous. But I don't think that that is going to be, I think it will be the fruit of our labor, but I don't think it will be, um, the result of our actions. If that, <laughs> I just split a big hair there, didn't I? But I mean, <laughs> I, I, I was trying to make a distinction between, I think if we do what we do, what we came here to do, which is just, you know, get fully embodied and then let the life force live our lives, then the fruit of that will be heaven on earth. As opposed to if we think, this is, I'm going to draw the maps and the plans now for heaven on earth and then I'll be happy. That's transhumanism. So that's a really key difference. I think all we have to do is, is show up. We just have to land and start living our lives and heaven will, will start emerging into, into this realm of God or whatever we're going to call that. Fully the life force will start distributing and, and we will be as the birds and the bees. And that, of course, would be heaven on earth if we, if we could even imagine that. Uh, and, and then who knows? I mean, yeah, maybe then earth joins you know, some intergalactic com community and, and we go to the next level. Sure, maybe that's part of it. Because uh, if we're in the time stream, presumably there's some divine plan unfolding. I mean, presumably, tautologically, by definition, if there's God in time, then God's got a plan. He's not just sitting there watching and, you know, kind of enjoying the show because God is, is imminent as well as transcendent. So, so something's unfolding, and we seem to be the primary instrument of it. And weirdly, our self-destruction is part of that. Even if it happens, that's presumably God collects the information and says, hmm, okay, next time, how do we avoid that? We you know, put that all that data into the, into the galactic computer. Now I'm using transhumanist terminology and, and and so the next iteration will get it right well there's even a a alternate reading of the bible of the old testament as uh I read, I read a book based on this and it was interesting way of looking at the scripture of saying that there was creation version one 
on Earth, which was then the Petri dish was kind of like, oh, this has all gone wrong. So the scientist chucks, throws away the contents of the Petri dish and starts again, basically, so that the creation, the Let There Be Light, was actually number two, and there was something before that. But if we don't make it on this physical realm, and it's possible that is the only one that there is, then maybe we'll never know if anything reboots or restarts further down the line. Maybe this will have been it. Now, and that leads me on to kind of a final talking point. In one of our previous chats, I speculated or said it was at least valid to consider the proposition that beyond Earth, that there is nothing out there, that is to say, no life. Now, we've no idea where the universe extends to, how much of it there is. As far as our instruments can reach, there's a hell of a lot of it, mind-boggling numbers. And I say, you were a bit surprised. You really, you know, you think there could be nothing whatsoever out there. And I say, well, there's just no evidence for it at the minute. Uh, it doesn't mean that there isn't, but it's a perfectly valid question to ponder, theoretical question. Now, in your book, towards the end, you do use the phrase, space is a whole lot of nothing. And this is in the context of you asking why, with regards to transhumanism, space colonization, and uh, again, I'm paraphrasing, are these people really so concerned with their descendants that they're going to embark on an endeavor of this sort of, sort of scale and complexity? Well, I suppose we're, we're back to transcending death, aren't we? So if you can't transcend death by becoming immortal, uh, then you have, you know, you, you, you put your life force, your imagination into your kids, uh, your, your descendants, your progeny, and, and they can live on. And so it'd be very essential then that the human race continues to live on. Uh, because if the human race dies, then there's no, there isn't even that kind of immortality. So, yeah, the fear of death would seem to be at least from one aspect, and we're talking particularly in a, in, you know, a secular age or an atheistic age in which God, quote unquote, is dead. For most, for many people, or certainly the ruling elite, it seems they killed him. Um, then death signifies non-existence, which, ironically, my father used to say to me, "Well." Because he, he believed death was non-existent, he believed in nothing. So uh, I said, "Aren't you afraid?" And he said, "Well, why are you afraid? I won't be be there when it happens." Uh, and I, and I found that crazy. But actually, now in my fifties, I could see there's a certain something in that. Actually, non-existence, from one aspect point of view, is the most terrifying thing there is. From another, it's nothing. It's literally nothing. But again, you know, people individuals who are unable to live and unable to really tune into a consciousness that transcends their minds, uh, I think there is, that is probably the greatest terror that there is. And so they will put it, they will, um, well, this is, there's this terror management uh, theory of, um, what's his name, Solomon Sheldrake, I think I had him on the Limitless a long time ago, uh, uh, it's from Ernest Becker, the denial of death, that the whole of culture is fueled by fear of death. And it works precisely because it keeps us busy, so we don't have to think about it. By giving us pursuits that are sufficiently meaningful, that they, you know, occupy our awareness completely enough that death doesn't sneak through any of those cracks. So I, I think that space, and there is a kind of poetic representation of this, isn't there? And that space is a whole lot of nothing. And yet we can 
precisely because of that, we can project everything onto it. We can fill it with whatever we want, even God, you know, uh, you know, our memory of God. Uh, space is big enough, literally big enough to fill because it's literally infinite. I mean, it is infinite to the human mind. We can't imagine the end. How do you imagine the end of space? What's on the other side, right? It's infinite. So, so yeah, it receives our projections. And so you've got a combination of things there. You've got the truly innate longing for union with infinity, with eternity, with God, which must be built into every organism in some way. Like we come from that, we're going to return to it. Uh, we come from the eternal, we're going to return to it. So there is an innate longing, but then there's also this, this, the terror of death, which is a social, you know, symptom, a symptom of over-socialization and trauma. And then that, that gets spliced to the, the innate longing, which fuels it and, uh, generates, I would say, what you're asking about there is the ultimate displacement activity, i.e., i.e., what can we do that will really keep us so busy and that it will provide sufficient counterfeit surrogate meaning that we don't notice that it's meaningless well there you have it uh, the only way the human race can survive and my own descendants can live on for eternity in quotes for a pseudo eternity is by going off into space and becoming you know making my descendants the avant-garde of the colonizers of the infinite i mean that's a great story a star trek isn't it the prime directive uh it's for kids in my view uh because it's it's such a simplification of something you know we as you say we don't even know if there's anything out there what if what if the only thing out there are, are lesser species because if they were higher wouldn't they have come to visit us and if they haven't why not so maybe the, the only thing out there is much less evolved species and we would be the like in star trek we would have to be the midwives of them helping them well who could be deluded enough to think that the humanity as is could possibly serve the function of a benevolent colonizing species that would help other species evolve you would have to be so insane to believe that but as you say there is there is a, a half of this equation is is total insanity um, which brings me to actually one thing i wanted to say today as well the other thing which is those the gods wish to destroy, they first make mad. And um, my sense is that, is, is that this is a, uh, a story that humanity is telling itself so that it can commit suicide without realizing that it's doing it and even believing that it's doing something wonderful and noble and good. Well, perhaps that's a, a good point to end on because uh, we can get as far as um, what else may be out there and reasons why we haven't discovered it yet. That's a whole other conversation in itself. Um, yeah, not, not a very happy note to end on, but uh, it's certainly a, an end note. Well, I just think it's a bit like, for me, contemplating black void of nothingness out there is a little bit like contemplating death, really. You know, kind of, if, if it is, then it is what it is. If, if, as like the school of idealism, which I'm kind of increasingly warming to as my life goes on. Uh, if in fact everything is within mind, then it's possible that we are it here on this like sort of little green blob on a pale blue dot and that everything we see out there with our telescopes and other fancy gear is just debris from that original 
creative thought, as it were. It's just the sort of the stuff left over, you know, the off cuts, <laughs> as it were. Yeah, well, I mean, compared to the infinite, or compared to God, it's true that one planet is is no smaller than a multiverse, is it? Like it's it's all nothing in relation to the the enormity of God. I mean, the unimaginable infinitude of God. And I certainly don't disagree that we, so far as we exist at all. We can only exist in eternity as some articulation of God or the eternal. Uh, so yeah, in that sense, that's that we are all there is. Even if there are other species out there, they would also be within us. You know, my father's house has many mansions, so why not look within for making contact? Today, Jason, our talk has been uh, inspired by uh, your book, Prisoner of Infinity, UFOs, Social Engineering and the Psychology of Fragmentation. That's easily available, all the usual outlets, as are your other books. But before we sign off, just share details of your website. And you mentioned The Liminalist a little while ago. That's your own podcast series, which you run. So just put any of that out there if you'd like to. Yeah, I'll have to get you on The Liminalist one of these days. Okay, I don't know what um, we're going to talk about, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know. We'll just continue these many unfinished conversations. Yeah, so it's autoculture.com, that's A-U-T-I, culture from autism. Uh, the Liminalist podcast between is there as well as my ongoing blog posts and uh, links to my various books. Yeah, I always like to hear from people, so there's a contact thing there as well. Uh, always looking to interact with other souls out there. This isn't a passive enterprise I'm involved in, so uh, I was happy to hear, get feedback from people. Splendid. Well, once again, Jason, thanks so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. <laughs>